Hebrews chapter 3 and then Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 in Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you any... I'm so sorry. Excuse me. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away by the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word. Well, good morning. And uh, it is uh, really wonderful news to, to share with uh, Richard and Susan, as well as with the Kims. And then as we go to prayer, we'll pray for the Lord's uh, comfort upon uh, Ted and the rest of the Justin family. Please join me in prayer. Father, it is uh, uh, on occasions of, of great joy and great sorrow that we are very great, grateful to be part of uh, your body, uh, your church. We do rejoice with Jane and Kiwan at the arrival of uh, Isabel. We pray uh, for her continued growth and, and good health. Um, Father, as well as for Jane and Kiwan as they now uh, have a family <coughs> of three children. And we ask that you would um, <clears throat> encourage them uh, as parents and help them, Lord God, to, uh, to trust in you and to, to fulfill uh, their role and their calling as parents, as husband and wife. We also, Father, uh, thank you for good news with regard to Richard and Susan and upon their engagement. And we ask that you would bless, Father, this time of preparation for marriage, that, uh, Lord God, as they uh, continue to uh, walk with you and walk with one another into the future that you have planned for them. May they sense the leading of your Holy Spirit. May their hearts be continued uh, to be knitted together so that as their relationship grows, as they uh, eventually do marry, that their marriage would be that reflection that your word speaks about of Christ's relationship with his church. And we, we just rejoice with them and pray your, your blessing upon them. And then, Father, we pray for Ted and, and the rest of the Jessen family in the, in the news, Lord God, and in dealing with, with grief and mourning and sorrow. We, we are always, as Christians, reminded that death is a, a bittersweet thing. We, we understand it is a, a part of what happens in this life, and yet uh, that <clears throat> is tempered, that sadness is tempered. As Paul says in, in 1 Thessalonians, that we do not grieve as those without hope. And so in uh, Ted's grief and the grief of the Justin family, as they, they mourn um, the, the death of uh, their brother, that your spirit would also encourage them with the hope that comes through the resurrection to eternal life through faith in Christ. Let their grief, O oh Lord God, um, as you have promised, uh, you count the tears uh, that we cry and you store them in a bottle. Uh, let their grief be used by your spirit to heal, uh, to help them, O oh Lord God, look continually to you for strength and hope and encouragement. May they lean on you even as they lean upon one another. And we, Father, uh, pray that this would be done because you are a good and gracious God. 
And then there are those of us this morning, Father, we gather on a Sunday morning, uh, each of us with a, a varying degree of need, a varying degree of joy, a varying degree of sorrow, a varying degree of anxiety, even of hope. And so we pray that as uh, we have begun uh, worshiping together, that as we now come to your word, your spirit would speak <clears throat> to our hearts and encourage us, not only with the, the solemnity of taking responsibility for one another, but the sheer joy of that, knowing that it was your joy that caused you to take responsibility for our sin, uh, to remind us of our great need for a great Savior. That indeed our sin is great, but the one who redeems us is greater. And that the one that now resides in us by faith is indeed greater than uh, anything in this world uh, that, it, that this world promises or has to offer. Or would even, Lord God, seek to uh, take from us that which you have given to us. So now, Father, we ask that you would speak to us from your word. For we ask and pray this in Jesus' strong and precious name. Amen. <clears throat> Well, we're continuing in our series on life in the family of God, and we're working through our church covenant, um, and we're doing that in order to do three things, which is to grow in our understanding of the covenant and its biblical foundation, to renew our vision, to be an active, vibrant, and joyful community of Christ followers, and lastly, to, that we would flourish as that church, that we would and see what we can do to encourage one another as well as to reach our neighbor with the gospel. So just in keeping with the theme of review, in the first message, when Pastor John spoke, he led us in the study of the covenant promise based on 1 John, that we would humbly love one another as Christ loved us, and that we will forgive one another as God has forgiven us. Last week, we looked at the covenant promise that uh, we will rejoice at each other's happiness and lovingly bear each other's burdens. We took our text there from 1 Corinthians 12. And today's message, which is based on Hebrews uh, 3 and then associated with uh, Ephesians 4, we look at the covenant promise that we will exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, graciously, graciously accepting encouragement and admonition. And then the big idea <clears throat> is that as followers of Christ, we'll live together by taking responsibility for one another and pointing each other to Christ as we walk toward the kingdom of God. That's a mouthful. So I've kind of shortened it <laughs> to this. We'll take responsibility for helping one another follow Jesus all the way home. That's our goal. To, to all arrive at the throne of grace together. Maybe not at the same time, but to be there on that day of days when the trumpet resounds and Christ returns and we are now in his presence. So we will take responsibility for helping one another follow Jesus all the way home. And Hebrews 3.13 is our key verse in that. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now the best way to understand that verse is really to review the context very quickly of Hebrews 3. Uh, the chapter, if you have your Bible open, you'll see, the chapter begins with the writer of Hebrews making a comparison between the ministry of Moses and the ministry of Jesus. And the point of that comparison is to elevate the superiority of Jesus' ministry as a son. If Moses was the, the builder, if you will, Jesus is the son who inhabits that house and so that we who are in Christ by faith would then 
have every reason to hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. And then to further incentivize us to hold fast to that confidence and that boasting, the writer does something very unusual. He reaches back into the Old Testament and he quotes from Psalm 95, the second half of Psalm 95, which um, I hope as you noticed it, there is a distinct break between verse 6 and verse 7. Verse, verses 1 through 6, very hopeful. We, this psalm is about coming, let us worship the Lord and all the things that God has done. And then there is a sudden shift in the second half where the writer points out the negative. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. We'll get into that in just a moment. He, he wants, does the writer of the Hebrews, he wants his readers to avoid following Israel's mistake, that of provoking God's wrath by testing him uh, during the time that they wandered in the wilderness during the Exodus. So he doesn't want them to provoke God's wrath. And so that requires us to unpack what is God's wrath very quickly. <clears throat> I think the best definition for God's wrath is to see God's wrath as his settled opposition to sin, evil, and injustice. That his wrath is his controlled response Emphasis on controlled and response, his controlled response to our refusal to respect him, to worship him, and to follow his rules. His wrath is an expression of his holiness. And his wrath describes his response then to anything or anyone that is unholy. In the Old Testament, God's wrath is often provoked by Israel's stubbornness and refusal to do what he wants. Their constant and continual covenant breaking. Israel sinned. This is why the writer quotes from Psalm 95. Israel sinned because they threw away their confidence. They cast aside their hope in God's power, in God's character, in God's grace, in God's mercy. They refused to trust in God's word, and they even went so far as to slander his character. This is why at the end of his life, we'll talk about this in a little bit too, at the end of his life, in, at the end of Joshua, Joshua 23.8, after Israel has entered and conquered most of the promised land, Joshua in verse 8 of chapter 23 exhorts the generation that he's about to leave to cling to the Lord. And not repeat the errors and mistakes of their forefathers, but to cling, to hold fast, literally like glue, to stick to the Lord. And so just as Joshua is exhorting uh, the Israelites there at the end of his life to hold fast their confidence and boasting in their hope, that's exactly what the writer of the Hebrews is doing. And so he's connecting, he's drawing from this historical event, and he's planting it squarely in the lives, the hearts, the minds, the souls of his readers. You, he says, are just like the Israelites whom God has blessed, God has poured out his grace upon. Do not throw away the confidence that he has given to you in Christ because that's what he's referring to when he talks about our confidence and boasting and hope. It's this new covenant relationship that they and we have by grace through faith in Christ as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
Christ is the very means by which we're able to draw near to God with confidence. You read the rest of the letters, particularly when you get into chapter 4, and he talks about Christ as our high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses and so that we are able always to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace there to receive mercy and find grace to help us when we need it. And so that whole clause then of holding fast to confidence, holding fast as boasting of hope, all of that is conditional upon doing that. That may sound odd because we are, as Reformed types, we always talk about God's unconditional love, God's unconditional grace, that he loves us no matter what, and he does. But if we truly loved God, if we truly are keeping Christ's commands, if we're truly walking in step with the Spirit, we will demonstrate that by holding fast to our confidence in Christ, holding fast to the boasting of our hope that Christ is our only source of salvation. So that in other words, we may be considered to be members of Christ's family only if we continue to cling to him as the author of our salvation. Now that shouldn't concern us because if we are truly indwelt by the Holy Spirit, if we have truly been born again by grace through faith in Christ, that is not an issue. But it is an exhortation that we need to follow. Even Jesus himself said that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. When he's talking to Peter at the end of, his, uh, at the end of John 21, and he asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And then he says, yes, well then feed my sheep. So yes, there's this subjective thing that we call love for Christ, but then the objective thing that we must do is for Peter to tend his sheep. We love Christ, that's true. That's the subjective part of it. The objective thing is to hold fast to your confidence, to practice what Christ preaches, to take responsibility for helping one another follow Jesus all the way home. And since most of the audience of the letter to the Hebrews were Jews who trusted in Jesus, that's why the writer quotes Psalm 95. It's something they all would have heard in synagogue and they would have perhaps even memorized as well. He wants to remind them that what happened to Israel when they threw away their confidence and refused to put their hope in God who delivered them uh, from slavery in Egypt. They, they had provoked God and he sentenced them to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. <clears throat> so at the end of that quote, in verse, at the end of verse 11 in chapter 3, the writer then issues that very strong admonition. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, the big idea, remember, of the message is that we will take responsibility for one another by helping one another follow Jesus all the way home. The rest of the message, we'll, we're going to look at answering two questions that flow out of Hebrews 3. The first question is, what is an evil, unbelieving heart, and why should we avoid it? And the second question, how can we help one another avoid being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? So what is an evil, unbelieving heart, and why should we avoid it? Well, an evil, unbelieving heart is the bitter fruit of failing to trust God. That's the end the intent of verse 12. Psalm 95 tells us that an, an evil, unbelieving heart provokes God's wrath by refusing to worship him and him alone. 
It's a heart uh, that denies God's power and it slanders his character. It's a heart that uh, draws us further and further away from relying upon God, more and more foolishly relying upon ourselves or something else. It also tells us, does Psalm 95, that while I would assume the majority of Israelites were very happy to no longer be slaves in Egypt, to be free from that, not every Israelite who wandered there with Moses was completely committed to worshiping God and God alone or following the Ten Commandments. You, you, you might even say a lot of them were still more Egyptian than they were Jewish. They saw no problem. They said, look, we'll worship this God that Moses talks to us about and has told us about, this God that he says saw in a, he saw in a burning bush and all that. We'll follow, but you know, we're, we're still going to follow the gods of, of Egypt. We want to cover our bases here. We don't want to offend just in case. You know, we'll knock on wood here. We'll, we'll cover all of our bases and we'll, we'll keep one foot uh, in relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but we'll keep another foot still in Egypt. That's a problem. The writer of Hebrews warns his congregation that he's worried that his congregation of Jewish believers will repeat that sin. They will test God by denying his power. They will slander his character. That they, in essence, will worship God with half a heart. So he warns them, be all in for Christ or suffer God's wrath. It was true for Israel. It was true for the early church. It's true for us today. That, that God is, is looking for people who worship him with all our heart. Worshiping him with, in spirit and in truth. He's not, looking, he's not looking for Christians who think they're worshiping him because they go to church. Or because they're good and moral people. God wants and he is looking for followers who are all in for Christ. Who are fully committed to loving him with all of their heart, their mind, their soul, their strength. And who then take that love for him and they show it to their neighbor. It's interesting to me that one of the most surprising uh, verses in the Old Testament is found in Joshua's farewell speech in 23 and 24 of Joshua. You know, Israel has conquered most of Canaan. Most of the promised land has been divided up between the tribes. And, uh, but there's still work to do. If you read the end of Joshua, there's still work. There's still land that needs to be conquered. People need to be driven out. And after encouraging Israel to cling to the Lord as he does in 23.8, listen to what Joshua says in Joshua 24, 14 and 15. He says, Now fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I don't know about you, but I find that stunning. Israel's rebellion... Remember, this is the generation whose parents and grandparents died in the wilderness because they provoked God's wrath by causing them to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. 
And then, after God brings them into the promised land, after God drives out the nations before them, after God helps them conquer cities, conquer cities for them, and then he gives them houses that they didn't build, vineyards that they didn't plant, Joshua still has to exhort them, put away the gods that your fathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt. Don't worship the gods of the Amorites in the land that you dwell. We think we can, we can somehow come into a relationship with Christ, bond ourselves to him by faith, bond ourselves to one another, and somehow still dabble in things that accrue to our past. That we can still pursue the gods of Wall Street and success. That we can still pursue the gods of Instagram and TikTok and likes and all of those kinds of things. We can still pursue the gods of materialism and pride and lust and arrogance. We can still dabble with those things because after all, we're just seeking to advance ourselves. We're just seeking to provide for our family. We're just seeking to make a better life for our children than we enjoy. And so we sacrifice those things for the sake of time spent at the office or time spent online. When I can guarantee you, having sat with people who have died, I have not, never heard to this day a dying man or woman say, you know, Pastor, I wish I spent more time online. I wish I spent more time at the office or on the golf course or at the bar. I wish I spent more time. Not a one. What they will say is, I wish I spent more time with my family. I wish I spent more time reading the word. This is what the writer of Hebrews is warning and exhorting us, warning against and exhorting us to. Warning against worshiping the gods of this world by exhorting us to pursue the God who has redeemed us with the blood of his one and only son. Joshua's farewell message tells us two things. It tells us, first of all, that an evil, unbelieving heart tries to keep one foot in Egypt and the other in the church. It's a heart, you understand, that is skilled at the separation of church and work or church and something else. It separates what happens on Sunday from what happens on Monday through Saturday. It's as if Sunday we go to church, and that's God's day. That's his time. But Monday through Friday, it's my time. It's my world. I compartmentalize it. What happens on Sunday doesn't affect nor influence what, I, what happens Monday through Friday. And Saturday, Saturday... It's catch-up day, catch-up on sleep day. It's driving your kids to whatever sports in season day. And listen, I, I was a hockey dad. I know I woke up many a morning on a Saturday early knowing that the day ahead involved driving two boys to hockey games in various parts of southwestern Ontario and a daughter to a figure skating recital somewhere else in southwestern Ontario. And I know the temptation to sort of diminish commitments and all of that. So it's not as if I'm not aware of the temptation. It's not as if I'm unaware of the stress and strain that that puts upon a marriage and upon a family. 
what I'm exhorting and encouraging it to do is what the writer of the Hebrews is, to put Christ first. In, in a humorous way of, of illustrating this, because this is pretty heavy, if you have ever seen the, the, the movie Kicking and Screaming with Will Ferrell and Robert Duvall, right? Will Ferrell is Robert Duvall's son. Robert Duvall coaches a soccer team. Like they all, you know, they're like the Raiders. They wear black and silver, right? and they, they win all the time. And, and there's this rivalry between Farrell and his father. And Farrell is coaching his son's soccer team because his son got cut from his grandfather's team. And he's playing for his father. And their team is just losing all the time until these two Italian boys come into the neighborhood to live with their uncle and to work at their uncle's butcher shop. And they just dominate the soccer field. They, just, they make this team of losers into a team of winners. But there's a conflict because the, fa- the, the, the boy's uncle is concerned that they put time in at the butcher shop. And so he would tell them that they can play soccer, he said, but first he would say in Italian, la carne viene prima. Meat comes first. In the same way, the writer of Hebrews is telling us, Cristo viene prima. Christ comes first. Above all. You put him first, everything else falls in line. We doubt that. We wrestle with that. The writer of Hebrews says, learn from Israel's error. They refused. They did not. And they paid a great and terrible price for it. So put Christ first. That's the the first thing. You can't keep one foot in Egypt and one foot in the church. You've got to be all in. Isn't this what Jesus tells us in the church of Laodicea? I want you to be hot or cold. Don't be lukewarm. Put your foot in one or the other. Be honest about it. The second thing that it tells us is that an evil, unbelieving heart is one that selectively applies the gospel when it's most convenient for us to do so. An evil, unbelieving heart is a heart that selectively applies the gospel when it's most convenient for us to do so. It's a heart that relies on God, uses God's language to our advantage, but the moment that God or Scripture says something contrary to what we want, contrary to what we've been brought up to think, we fudge. (laughs) We ignore it. We diminish it. We make light of it. We may pray for something and not receive it. And we forget at that time when we don't receive the thing we pray for, God says no, that he, he says no because his answer is based on a superior wisdom to ours. That he says no Sometimes, well, more often than not, not to spoil our fun, but to protect us. Um, when our kids were uh, learning how to use inline skates, they would forever complain. You know, because Jill is more safety conscious than I, but Jill would say, wear a helmet, wear your wrist guards, wear your knee pads. And they would just sort of stand very, like, mopishly in front of us. Look at me. I've got all... Uh, you know, and, and, and all their friends aren't wearing this stuff. And Jill's line was, I'm not trying to spoil your friend, I'm trying to protect you. But it never dawned on our, our boys, especially, that they would complain about wearing all of this protective equipment when they went rollerblading, but never when they played hockey. Right? There's a certain place for that, isn't there? So, so when God says no, it's not to spoil our fun, but it is to protect us. We would often tell our kids, look... <laughs> I've been 13. You haven't been 40. 
So trust me, I know what I'm talking about when I say don't do that. Sometimes God doesn't say no. Sometimes he says wait. Now is not the time. You're not ready for that responsibility. You're not mature enough to deal with the demands that will be placed upon your faith. You need to learn the discipline of delayed gratification. We take responsibility for one another. That's how we help a younger brother or a younger sister in the Lord and say, look, these things are happening for this reason. God wants to instill in you a maturity, a sense of self-discipline. So we tell, we tell our dating couples, don't have sex before marriage because while that is a good thing that God has created, it exists properly within a proper context. It's why you don't lie in your taxes or cheat in your taxes. It's, there's, there are reasons you do certain things. An evil, unbelieving heart believes that as long as God gives me what I want, I'll do what he wants. It's a transaction. But as soon as he denies my request, as soon as he demands something that cuts into my agenda, he and I are going to have a problem. That kind of attitude, you understand, that puts me at risk of falling away because that means that reveals I have not truly submitted to Christ. That if I truly love God, I'll do what he wants, even to my own hurt. That's you read Psalm 15. Right? Who is the one that could ascend to the hill of the Lord? One who swears an oath, even to his hurt. Right? If I truly love Christ, I will obey his word. Even when it exposes or reveals something to me about myself that I do not like. Because the purpose of drawing that unlikable thing out of my soul is that it may be drawn into the light and killed by the truth and that I may more perfectly reflect the glory of Christ in my words, my speech, and my conduct. We take responsibility for one another by being able to come alongside and say, Brother, that attitude has got to go because it's harmful, and here's why. Or sister, that kind of speech, that's not appropriate for one who claims to follow Christ. So let's find out a way to describe that in terms that are more glorifying and more edifying. If I am truly walking in step with the Spirit, I will practice love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I will bear and give evidence to the fruit of the Spirit, especially, especially when I'm confronted by my bad behavior. Think about this from a, the biblical standpoint. Think about when, David conf when Nathan confronts David about his adultery with Bathsheba. David didn't deny it. He didn't excuse it. He didn't blame it on Bathsheba. You know, he didn't say, you know, Nathan, if she hadn't been bathing in the nude on the roof, none of this would have happened. He didn't play it down. Or attribute, like, that was a serious error in judgment. Or, or, or like George Costanza, was that wrong? Should I have not done that? Is that a problem? No, when he is confronted by Nathan, he said the three hardest words there are in the English language for any man to say. I was wrong. I have sinned against the Lord, he said. The sin is mine. He took ownership of it. In the same way, when Paul confronts Peter in Antioch, because Peter had separated himself from eating with Gentiles there for fear of men from the circumcision party, 
men who were Christians, but who believed, they were Jews who became Christians, but they believed that in order to be truly converted, all Gentile men had to be circumcised. When these men arrive, Peter separates himself from the Gentiles, and he eats exclusively with these Jewish believers. And, Pete, and Paul confronts him about this. And he warns him, you can read about this in, in Galatians 2. He goes so far as to warn Peter, his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, think about the irony and hypocrisy of what Peter's doing here. This is Peter, who in Acts 10, receives a vision from God to go to the home of Cornelius the Roman centurion. He even tells Cornelius when he gets there, because he is Peter after all, well, you know, according to my law, we're not supposed to have anything to do with you Gentiles, but God has showed me that he is one who shows no partiality. And so he preaches the gospel to Cornelius and his family, and the Holy Spirit falls upon all of Cornelius' family. They believe in Jesus and they're baptized. This, and then when Peter has to defend his actions, he does so by saying, look, God shows no partiality, and here he is showing partiality. <laughs> and Paul confronts him about that. More seriously, though, in addition to showing that kind of partiality, Paul warns Peter that he is in danger of falling away from the gospel because he was nullifying the grace of God revealed by the gospel. And again, you know, when Nathan confronts David, David doesn't say, how dare you accuse me of doing this thing? But you know, the Lord has called me a man after his own heart. Who are you? I'm the king. And when Paul confronts Peter, Peter didn't say, Paul, how dare you challenge me? I mean, I was really there with Jesus. I saw him with my own eyes. And by the way, has he ever told you you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church? I don't think so. On the contrary, both David and Peter, they confessed their sin, they repented, and they re were restored. Their response revealed that their hearts were tender to the truth. They received reproof, not as condemnation, but as a stepping stone back to a right relationship with God. So here's the question. When a brother confronts you about your behavior, how do you respond? Do you respond, you know, how dare you? Stay out of my business. That's not really your concern. Leave me alone. Or do you say, like David, I was wrong. I've sinned. Help me get back in step with the Spirit. When a sister challenges you regarding something you've done, do you say, that's none of your business? Or do you say, I'm sorry, what can I do to make things right? When your wife confronts you, do you try to gaslight her and say, no, you're mistaken, I didn't say, that's not what I meant? Or do you, do you take that and say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, I hurt you? Regardless of my intention, I can see that what I said, what I, said, what I did harmed you. Forgive me. You work from there. No excuses. You just own up to it and you move forward. And in as much as David and Peter revealed that kind of tender heart and are to be admired for their repentance, without Nathan and without Paul, both men would never have been confronted about their sin and they would never have known that they were in danger 
of growing within them an evil, unbelieving heart. That leads to the next question, which is how can we help one another avoid being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Now, before we answer that question, we've got to unpack what we mean by the deceitfulness of sin. And it's simply this. It's refusing, the deceitfulness of sin is refusing to trust God has your best interest at heart. It's the stubborn belief that God cannot be trusted to do what's right, good, and just. It's a, it's a cold-hearted conviction that despite everything that God has done for you in the past, he cannot be trusted to be there when you really need him. That was Israel's sin. Think about it. From Israel's standpoint, sure, he delivered us from slavery, but can he part the Red Sea? Sure, he parted the Red Sea, but can he give us fresh water to drink? Okay, okay, he gave us fresh water to drink, but can he also give us meat? Okay, all right, sure, he gave us meat, but can he really defeat our enemies? Okay, 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 he, he defeated our enemies, but can he really bring us into and conquer the promised land? Now, you create your own, sure, but. Sure, God delivered me from that particular illness, but can he now provide for me here? God got me through that very difficult time when money was tight, but can he now help me with this? That's the deceitfulness of sin. It, it's, what, it's what caused Adam and Eve to eat the tree from the knowledge of good and evil, to eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God has given you everything, but really, this thing he's keeping from you. The best protection against the deceitfulness of sin is a community committed to taking responsibility for one another. You think back to Adam and Eve. When Eve presents Adam with the apple or the fruit, Adam's responsibility at that point would say, Eve, we can't do this. This is wrong. This is contrary to what God's word says. You have broken the commandment. That's one form of taking responsibility. Another form is on the positive side. It's saying... Let's work together to follow Christ more obediently. Because when you think about it, what Hebrews 3.13 is saying in the negative, Paul says in the positive in Philippians 3.12 to 16. 12 to 16 in Philippians 3 says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. So when that brother comes along or that sister comes along and says, this attitude, that word, that behavior is wrong, they're not talking to you from a position of superiority as if they have attained perfection themselves. What they are speaking to you from is one who, although not perfect, knows by virtue of the ministry of the Spirit what's right and what's wrong, what glorifies God and what detracts from that glory, what helps you propel yourself forward toward Christ or what draws you back so you come alongside if you're going to correct if you're going to encourage you do that with humility as Paul does here but I press on he says to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own I do not consider that I have made it my own but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he adds this, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. 
Sometimes he will do that directly through his word. Sometimes he will do that indirectly through a third party. A brother or sister will come along and say that attitude, that belief, that behavior, that's not in keeping with one who is keeping in step with the Spirit. As Christ followers, we are responsible to the Lord as well as to one another. It's why Paul can write in Philippians 2, work at your salvation together in community because it's not good for anyone to be alone. We are responsible for taking responsibility for one another by helping one another follow Jesus all the way home. That is both to correct as well as to encourage and to build up. That's the whole point of the Ephesians passage. Speaking the truth in love to one another, we seek to grow one another up into our full height, our full maturity. Because if we're working properly together as a body, we're working together not only to admonish, but also to encourage and build up and to edify. Encouraging one another to practice what Jesus preaches isn't idle cheerleading. It's a sincere effort to follow Paul's instructions to what he says in Philippians 2, 2, 3, uh, 3 and 4. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should in humility be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others. That takes sacrifice. And I'll be honest, sometimes that's a sacrifice that's beyond my ability to meet, but I'm still required to meet it. It's also what Paul says again in Philippians 4. To encourage one another, speak the truth in love. I saw this in practice at the various churches in which I served. I remember the story of this one fellow who was a very successful businessman, but he was an alcoholic. And there was a good friend of his in the church who knew about this. And he said, look, you, you, he, he recognized he had the problem. Here's what I'll do. Here's my bargain with you. I will drive you every week to your AA meeting. I won't sit in on the meeting, but I will wait in my car until you're done to make sure you go and then you have a ride home that you don't go to the bar. And he did that every week until his friend and that man would no longer take a drink. That's taking responsibility. There was another time in which there was a fellow <clears throat> in the church I attended <clears throat> where the elders became aware of uh, an adulterous relationship that he was carrying on and how to confront him about this. And we just, the four or five of us, we just pulled him aside. We had the receipts. We said, brother, this is, this is not right. This is behavior that has to end. You need to end the relationship, the illicit relationship. You need to Ask forgiveness for your wife and we'll, we'll help you work toward reconciliation. You need counseling, we'll pay for it. You need help, we'll be there for you. And their marriage was restored. And then there was another time in which there was a, a, a guy who had his own business. And uh, I was sitting in my office and I got a phone call to the local police. He had been in an accident. Um, <clears throat> and uh, the police showed up. It was a minor accident. But for some reason, it was the middle of the day, the policeman wasn't sh quite sure about my friend's mental state, and he did a breathalyzer test, and he was over the limit. So not only was he in an accident, but he was now drunk. Our elders knew about this fellow, and the next day, after we got out of jail, we went to his home, and we did an intervention. And we helped him get back 
into sobriety. That's what it looks like. I'm sure there are other stories here among the, the membership here, even before my arrival, where you have done that. But bear in mind, all of that, whether it's admonishment or encouragement, all of that flows out of Christ's coming in the flesh to confront us about our sin. You knew at some point I was going to turn this to Jesus, didn't you? Because that's really, when you think about it, that's what Jesus did. He took responsibility for our sin by pointing out our sin. Because just before uh, Hebrews 3, Hebrews 2 ends with these words. Speaking of Jesus, the writer says, For surely it is not angels that Jesus helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, that is, everyone who is in Abraham by faith. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or atonement for the sins of the people. And then there is this marvelous verse. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Christ took responsibility for our sin so that we could take responsibility for helping one another follow Jesus all the way home. You think about that. Let's pray. Father, it is not always easy to come alongside and admonish. We much prefer times of encouragement, sincere cheerleading in which we affirm what is good. We pray, Lord God, that we would learn the balance between the two and do both with great care, great compassion, and out of a great desire to see Christ glorified, not only in our church, but in the lives and the hearts and homes of our brothers and sisters. This is our commitment to one another, which flows out of our commitment to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.